Welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. If you watched the Emmys last month, you saw a Capital One commercial talking about how it's changing banking. It makes for a catchy slogan, banking reimagined, and cool graphics with the guy kicking down pillars of the old banking experience. But what's it mean? What is banking reimagined? We had the chance to speak with Andy Navarrete, Executive Vice President of Capital One, a few weeks ago about Capital One's commitment to the community. Capital One's on a mission to change banking for good by bringing humanity, ingenuity, and simplicity to banking. By putting people first, it's both igniting positive change and becoming a force for good in our communities, LGBTQ and otherwise. That is why we continue to partner with Capital One. The real and lasting change is evidenced by the vast network of nonprofit organizations and local leaders Capital One works with that enhance educational opportunities, provide job training, build safe and affordable housing, and deliver financial education, and promote small business. To learn more about these projects, go to CapitalOne.com forward slash about. Now, last week on episode 175, we talked with interior designer to the stars Bernardo Puccio. Remember, we brought up those names of Liz Taylor, Rock Hudson, and Lana Turner? Bernardo is an example of someone who, no matter where he lived or worked, was always himself. Always includes the 1950s Alabama. Bernardo credits much of his success to staying true to himself at work and at home. This is another reason why we partner with Capital One, because it invites employees to be their true selves and to bring their whole selves to work. Walk into any Capital One Cafe and tell us you don't see people who look like you. To learn more and be inspired by Bernardo's story in last week's episode, we shared the opportunity to win a copy of Bernardo's book. That opportunity is still available. To get those instructions, listen to episode 175. Now, on with Andy. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. This podcast is sponsored by Capital One. Capital One is redesigning the banking experience by offering simple, straightforward, and seamless ways for you to bank from almost anywhere, so banking fits into your life, not the other way around. So welcome, Andy Navarrete from Capital One to the show. We're excited to have you. Uh, Thank you for having me. Of course. So would you mind sharing for our audience a little bit about what Capital One's social impact journey has been? Absolutely. It's, um, you know, I, I think this is something that uh, we have always believed to be core to our DNA. Um, you know, there's kind of an interesting uh, resurgence of a debate going on between, uh, you know, what folks would call shareholder value and what uh, others would call stakeholder value. You know, this notion of whether or not a corporation is uh, should be, you know, sort of fully committed to maximizing profits and returns to its shareholders versus addressing the needs of a whole breadth of different constituencies, including you know, not only customers, but the communities in which we operate, our associates, um, you know, the um, those who are proponents of certain social causes. And I think, you know, it's not a debate that I think Capital One has ever felt the need to have consciously. I just think it's something that uh, from our origins, we always believed uh, that we had a much broader group of stakeholders to serve. And so, you know, when we think about social impact, we don't think about it as an off the side of the desk activity. We don't think about it as the Department of Philanthropy. Uh, We see it as fully integrated into the work that we do. And uh, that's probably not surprising for a company that operates in, you know, uh, broadly in the financial services sphere. And you all know better than most how important financial services are to the average American. 
Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, something where because of the businesses that we chose uh, to build our franchise around, including credit cards in the underserved market, um, we were almost from the beginning uh, trying to address the needs of uh, communities that had traditionally been shut out of the uh, tradi- uh, the financial services sector. And so I think that just sort of created these natural synergies between our core business, what we were doing strategically, and this notion that we were serving a, a broader purpose and a broader community. And I'm curious, where did that come from? Having been in the industry for too many years, and I'd like to admit <laughs> myself, you're kind of an anomaly that way. Where, where did, exactly did that come from? No, like I think that's a fair point. I'm going to credit our our, our founder, Rich Fairbank. You know, we're one of the um, only banks, I think, pretty much the only bank of a, a of any significant size that is still founder led. You know, Rich often jokes that we are about a hundred years behind the rest of the industry. Uh, in the sense that most banks were founded a century ago, if not two centuries ago. But that has also given us a bit of a natural advantage, uh, which is that we could kind of define uh, the businesses and the markets that we wanted to be in. We weren't working off of um, an inherited foundation. And so, you know, one of the insights that uh, Rich hit upon when he was in strategy consulting was he couldn't fathom why every credit card was priced exactly the same way. Yeah. You know, for those old enough to remember the 80s, it was 19.8% APR for everyone and a $25 annual fee. And that was the basic structure of the product. And, uh, you know, while that may sound simple and intuitive and, and logical, one of the consequences of that was that credit cards, by and large, were reserved only for the top end of the market. And so it would, you know, you typically had to have deep uh, banking relationships and financial relationships uh, before you would sort of earn the right to get a credit card. And so it was probably maybe, a, you know, a third to half of Americans maybe had access to that kind of product. You know, his thought was, you know, credit ought to be a lot more democratic in the sense of, you know, looking at e- each person's individual circumstances, pricing for their individual risks. And so some people should pay a little bit less. Some people should pay a little bit more. But this notion of sort of mass customization of products that would address the needs of a broader community was uh, was sort of the the aha moment that he had. And what that led to was us discovering, along with some other entrepreneurs at the time, this whole vast underserved market. You know, I think when you know, when people talk about uh, the underserved community and the subprime community within the U.S., sometimes it's difficult to remember that that represents uh, about 40% of the country. Mm-hmm. And so if you are going to reach that community and that constituency, then you need to sort of rethink how you do financial services, how you do redo product design, how you redo underwriting. And so you know, the intersection then of wanting to serve this traditionally underserved community and marrying that to a strategic opportunity, a gap in the market, as it will, I think, you know, kind of led to, um, you know, to a nice sort of synergistic origin story for the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. It kind of ties back to what Jennifer Winbeck said on episode 172, talking about banking reimagined. And we t- we kind of jokingly said that many of the traditional older banks, these ones that have been around for 100, 200 years, still have what many people consider to be a boring banking model, right? It's, it's, <laughs> exactly. uh, it's just either a culture or a physical structure that oftentimes doesn't resonate with individuals. And you've been around roughly 25 years and I think That's you right. said at FinCon a couple of weeks ago that you have been with the company for 20 years. So you've been a part of all of this idea of being something different so that you could serve different people, people who haven't been served in the past. 
No, look, I, I think that's exactly right. And that's, you know, part of why I sort of say that this, um, you know, being sort of behind the rest of the industry in terms of our heritage um, has actually been a, a source of competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. You know, when I started at the company in, back in 1999, um, we didn't have a single branch. We had really no brick and mortar presence. And so, you know, the infrastructure of the company and the psychology of the company was built up around this notion of, of figuring out other ways to serve our customers. Uh, you know, through digital channels and, and and other sort of virtual means. And 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 I think because of that, that had us kind of leaning heavily into technology and that and the promise of technology from from the get-go. Even, you know, and 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 I know you talked about this at, at length with Jennifer, but uh, this whole sort of notion of banking reimagined, you know, over time we did start to buy traditional banks. Um, and that was sort of an important part of our diversification strategy. But you know, as we sort of looked at the traditional branch model, you know, I, I do think that, you know, uh, customers still have some expectation of, uh, of a brick and mortar presence. It gives them a sense of security. It gives them a, an opportunity to work face to face with a customer service representative. And so I think that's an important component. But the notion that somehow we're wedded to the old model of, you know, a boring place with uh, three-inch bulletproof glass and, you know, in rope lines that, um, that you know, snake around into the, um, into the lobby, none of that really made any sense to us. And one of the things that we started to realize was customers were coming less and less frequently, you know, through tra- digital channels and other means. Uh, they just don't need branches the way that they used to. And so if they're going to come to the branch, give them a compelling reason to do so. Give them somebody to talk to who's not going to, you know, uh, aggressively sell a product. Uh, give them an atmosphere where they could, you know, have free Wi-Fi, maybe some community space. Branches oftentimes occupy uh, extremely attractive real estate, and so uh, they're natural gathering places for individuals. And, and then there was this idea of, like, why not serve coffee? And so, the, you know, the whole sort of idea of a cafe where, you know, you can avail yourself of a whole host uh, of different interactions. Uh, you can get, you know, programming around financial literacy. You can get money coaching and, and, and advice at an individual level. You know, all of these things were things we were already doing. It's just that we decided that the, the branch or the cafe in this instance uh, would become the hub of that kind of activity, and um, and we've loved the results so far. I think the uh, you know the way that we've been able to integrate into our communities through these vehicles has just been a, a wonderful thing to see. I agree with everything you're saying, and I think what's so interesting is that the way you started on the more digital front actually, I think, lends itself to helping many people in our community um, who have been underserved. These are indi- A lot of these are individuals who didn't feel comfortable going into a brick-and-mortar location because right. traditionally they looked at the person sitting on the other side of the table and said, they probably don't understand my needs or who I am and, and how I live my life, so how can they help me if they don't understand me? And so... I think it lends itself to that. But the thing that I love, especially the couple of the the uh, cafes that we've been in, is that that has that whole notion of that has been torn down. Going into uh, some of the branches, especially when we were in the one in D.C., seeing other LGBT people there as ambassadors working with the public is great for our community because it does provide that kind of resonates with their story resonates with mine or they're going to understand my needs. The um, you know, thank you, thank you for the shout out for our ambassadors. I just have to hand it to our retail team for uh, for finding folks not only with you know a wealth of knowledge and expertise, but with um, you know personalities and empathy skills and a reflection of the diversity of our communities. 
that really makes them very much uh, a part of the communities that they enter. And it's, uh, you know, these cafes have become hubs of volunteerism. They become uh, locales for our community partners to gather and to meet. And the ambassadors play such a critical role. I mean, they really do, in many respects, live up to that name in a pretty profound way. Um, but, you know, you, you raised two great points, which is, you know, when we thought about sort of democratization of credit, um, you know, realizing that you have to meet customers where they want to be met and you can't force feed them into, you know, specific channels or interaction models. And I agree with you that so many people are so uncomfortable and bristle at the notion of talking about their financial profile. And so, you know, especially in the modern age, you know, sometimes digital channels, whether that be email or text through uh, through our, uh, our Eno chatbot, you find that customers are willing to share uh, more of their circumstances and are more comfortable talking about their circumstances when they work through those channels. And I think that's particularly true of uh, constituencies and communities that have felt, you know, outside of the mainstream of financial services or have felt marginalized by these businesses. At the same time, you, you can, I think, balance that with, you know, hiring people who reflect the community. And so the fact is, is that we have, uh, you know, any number of uh, of our ambassadors are members of the LGBT community, and and, and so you know hiring uh, people like I said who, who who look like the places that they live, that is a um, I think a wonderful dimension of the cafe model and of this notion of integrating social and progressive goals with uh, with our business strategy. When John and I were on our Queer Money Live tour, uh, one of the places that we stopped was an LGBT center in the Bronx. And one of the interesting things was the group of people that we met with there, several people said it was refreshing to see somebody from the community coming out and talking to them about money because traditionally it's been, and these are their words, a straight white man coming into a community center trying to sell us a bank account. And it doesn't feel like there is any sort of connection there. And that's, I think, you know, you guys are going to kind of flipping that on the model, which are flipping that model of going out and selling an account rather than engendering people to a community space where they feel comfortable, which I, I guess that really does tie back into this whole idea of you having a social impact and it connecting with a broader mission. No, look, I, I think that's absolutely right, and it's um, you know, it's an issue that's uh, near and dear to my heart as well. I'm a, I'm a I'm son of immigrants and. You know, parents who, uh, who who came to the U.S. in the in the 1960s and um, and struggled for many years financially, and you know the, you know would they have at that point in their lives with English as a second language, with um, you know lacking uh, a full understanding of how the financial services system worked here, you know would they have wanted that same individual sort of coming in force feeding a product on them? And I think the answer to that is no. And you know, there were so few options back then, uh, but for them to sort of grin and bear it and learn the system and assimilate fully. I, you know, love the fact that when we deal with immigrant communities or we deal with different communities across our footprint and, and we operate in places like New York and D.C. And, and the Gulf Coast, obviously there's a rich diversity in those communities mm-hmm. um, that we have uh, individuals that know their circumstances firsthand and can communicate in a way that they feel comfortable. And that, uh, you know, that, that, I, that I think is, um, you know, absolutely table stakes these days mm-hmm. uh, if we're really going to be as inclusive an institution as we can be. So I, I see the the social value, and I see the uh, humanitarian value from it. But uh, from a business perspective, can you describe for our audience what the the business value is of your social impact? Yeah, no, I, I think it's um it's it's multifold. I mean, uh, you know, the uh, uh, we we have an initiative uh, called a Future Edge, um, which is you know it's it, it's the um, you know kind of the umbrella uh, or the you know sort of undergirding philosophy that we put around. 
our um, our, our social impact work. And um, it's you know it's very deliberately chosen for a company that is you know in many respects built its infrastructure on on forward leaning technology. Um, this notion of always being future focused, um, you know, going to where we believe the markets and and, and the world is uh, are going are are kind of guiding philosophies for for how we do our business. You know, when you think about, you know, the kinds of, of, of products and services that we can offer to our customers, you have to kind of recognize and tailor those products to, you know, the way sort of the markets are migrating. Uh, you know, millennials have a different interest than, uh, than, than boomers. And, you know, as a, a proud representative of Gen X, I'm probably somewhere <laughs> in between, right? Um, yeah. And so if you don't take the time to, one, understand your community, uh, chances are you're missing market opportunities. But the second component is, is that we then have an obligation to sort of pay forward our success in ways that creates the new generation of customers. And so when you think about, you know, the focus is uh, a future edge, which is, you know, small business incubation, which is workforce development. You know, these are the kinds of things where we are building the customers of the future. And, it, you know, it, it's, um, you know, we could do what we do for purely altruistic reasons. And there is a mission and a social impact in its purest sense uh, component of that story. But I will fully confess, we are selfishly trying to build wealth in our communities in a way that we hope will create, as I said, the next generation of customers. And so, so much of our focus of our programming is on, you know, helping, again, these same underserved communities build new technical skills, uh, which then hopefully make them employable to a broader constituency of potential employers, and then help them uh, on their career path so that they're not uh, necessarily relegated to, um, you know, to, to positions without a, a real career trajectory associated with it. You know, and at the same time you're doing workforce development, then you've also got to sort of understand that it doesn't serve us or these individuals to, you know, help them get a job. And then not to support them on, you know, what that then, you know, career needs or whatever, what it takes to sustain a career and a successful path over time. And so that's where the financial literacy comes in. That's where the money counseling comes in. Uh, that's where the affordable housing comes in. This is where the supportive services within the affordable housing come in. Because what we want to do is sort of take the long view of saying when you invest in somebody and their success, you know, you are at that point establishing a long-term relationship and one that you hope will carry forward into successive generations. It's not just a point in time thing where saying, okay, hey, we did this for you and now you're on your own. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, again, I'm going to say this I've said it several times. I love everything that you're, you're saying right now, because I think it really connects with, uh, with us as educators in the LGBT community when it comes to personal finance or finance in general. Many of you may be wondering or have, may have your own feelings about us partnering with a company like Capital One. And so this is the reason why we want, we want to share what Capital One is doing. It's not just about making money. It's not just about us having a sponsor of this podcast or partnering with an organization like Capital One. We've been working with Capital One for three years now. The very first year that we started working with them, they wanted an LGBT component when they were introducing their banking to Denver. Then when they started talking about how to educate couples when it comes to their money, they wanted to include an LGBT couple. They included us. And then this past year, Capital One was supportive of our education efforts of getting out into the LGBT community and talking about money and helping the community to realize that there are advantages to us educating ourselves more about money because 
many banks, many financial institutions have left us behind for such a long time. So thank you again, uh, Andy and Capital One. So. <laughs> No, I appreciate that, and uh, and and you know, I think when we um, had a chance to connect at um, at FinCon uh, last week, uh, you know, one of the things that we talked about was the LGBT community has um, has always been an extraordinarily important relationship for us, um, and it started again in some instances, you know, because our, our our company sort of had a predisposition to think about uh, diversity and inclusion as a corporate value, but also again for selfish reasons. You know, one of the things that struck me uh, uh, back in 1999 when I joined was that uh, Capital One offered same-sex partner benefits, which at the time was you know in corporate America virtually unheard of. Then I remember asking our, our HR folks, I said, well, you know, my gosh, that's such a progressive viewpoint. How, how did you come about this? And they said, we want the biggest talent pool possible, right? It was, again, for very, very business oriented and, you know, I, and I sort of say this lovingly selfish reasons, uh, which is if we're going to, you know, literally tap into the broadest possible pool of talent, the policies that you adopt within your organization have to reflect that. They have to be supportive. They have to be inclusive. And so, you know, what I saw uh, during my uh, my time and, and one of the reasons why I think I've lasted 20 years is because I've seen those values fully integrated into our business objectives and goals. Uh, it has helped us not only be a successful company, but also be one that is, you know, extremely diverse and, and very inclusive and then is able to turn that diversity and inclusion around into being a foundational element of how we understand the markets in which we operate and design the products that we serve. And so it becomes this sort of flywheel effect or this virtuous circle of um, initiatives that lead um, all to the same goal. Right. Yeah. So I was, I was going to ask what has motivated Capital One to support the LGBT community in the ways that you have, but I think you just answered that there. So maybe do you have an example of maybe you know of someone or a group of people that have been impacted, especially if it's someone from the LGBT community that has been impacted because of your mission or your this uh, social impact journey? Yeah, you know, it's, um, it's just so, so many great examples, I think, um, with respect to some of the work that we've been able to do in the, in the communities in which we operate. You know, as I noticed, you know, we, 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 we operate in a lot of, um, you know, sort of uh, large metropolitan areas, including, uh, you know, New York and D.C. and, and, and the Dallas area and Texas and, and, and New Orleans. But then we also have um, cafes in a number of different markets in now 30 different markets um, across the country. So we, we see a lot of different kinds of, of communities and opportunities. You know, uh, one of our uh, signature partnerships and something that we featured uh, in this year's Corporate Social Responsibility Report was uh, our work with the Aliforni Center in, um, in New York. And for those who don't know, and the Aliforni Center, it offers a host of supportive services for LGBT youth. And um, we had... Uh, one individual, uh, an immigrant from Jamaica, who came to the U.S. largely to flee the kind of repression that the LGBT community faced in his home country. I mean, it's um, you know it's sort of uh, extraordinary to think about, but uh, uh, you know there are still laws in the books in Jamaica that um, you know that criminalize the LGBT community, and 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 so coming to New York was uh, was in many respects an existential choice uh, for Sky. But what he found when he came here was a difficult integration into the sort of economic structure. It is very intimidating to come to a city like New York and, and, and to not have the kind of supportive services that help one find a job or to develop the skills necessary to understand how to navigate one's financial well-being and to find housing. Um, and Sky found himself homeless. He was um Thankfully, uh, connected to the Alley Forty Center, and uh, which, by the way, I mean, for, for the thing started as six cots in a basement, 
uh, of a church and is now has uh, 14 centers uh, serving uh, almost 1,500 youth um, every year. But through that program, he was able to to learn uh, job skills um, and is now you know uh, working uh, as an advocate on behalf of the LGBT community, and then also learning additional technical skills in the in the aircraft field, which has always been a a particular passion for him. But there's also um, you know he got money coaching and, and and learned to sort of understand how to open a bank account, how to manage one's income. Uh, it's helped them find housing. So it's, you know, one of these things where, again, this sort of all-encompassing effort uh, to make sure that you are partnering with organizations that recognize the totality of the need in a way that then can um, set an individual like Sky moving forward in his uh, in his journey. And so, uh, it, you know, again, just one story, and it's a wonderful one, but, uh, but those are the kinds of impacts uh, we're looking to have. You know, I think, you know, the mistake that some corporate philanthropy departments make is that they make it all about the corporation, right? We contributed X tens of millions of dollars to this cause, or, you know, we won an award for this particular activity. It's not to say that the numbers aren't important uh, and that the recognition isn't appreciated, but in the end, at the end of the day, if you can't point to the human impact, if you can't point to the individual story of success, um, then chances are you're leaving something on the table and maybe not understanding the totality of what it is you're here to do. Right. Yeah. You know, and I would say it's great that you have stories like that. I know of several other stories that we've uh, we've heard from work that Capital One has done, and that's I think that's one of the challenges, right? That uh, many of us in our community don't necessarily like the invasion of capitalism into the LGBT community or into the Pride celebration. But one of the benefits that we have from corporations like Capital One is the fact that they support so many of the services that many in our community who don't have access to them would not have if it wasn't for contributions or work by associates or actually getting out there and physically helping someone. So it's it's great to hear that Capital One is one of those corporations that's doing that. Uh, look, I really appreciate that sentiment. And it's, um, you know, it, it's interesting as, you know, in, in, in the current political environment, there is... Um, and, and look, I understand this, um, you know, being a financial institution, uh, you know, still within uh, not so distant memory of the financial crisis. I, I understand certainly that there can be a distrust of big corporations or distrust of banks. But uh, one of the things that has always struck me, you know, I, I grew up in politics and um, government relations and, and advocacy work is, is, is still a core part of, um, of what I help Capital One with. You know, one of the things that I've done over the years is to sort of study the most successful advocacy movements. And I've always held up the LGBT community as being one of the most prescient and successful advocacy movements of all time. And, you know, what some, you know, perhaps younger members of this, you know, community or observers might forget is that one of the core insights in that advocacy effort was to start with corporate America. Right. Um, you know, in, in many respects, you know, the, the traditional path of advocacy in the civil rights space has been, you know, fight it out in the courts, fight it out in the schools, fight it out in institutions that, uh, that are sort of more government oriented. But the LGBT community recognized, you know, look, we're an economic powerhouse. And for corporations and, and the business community to sort of understand that, you know, I talked about it through one lens, which is talent. But I could easily talk about this as in terms of market opportunities, customer opportunities. And so when you sort of take the totality of the impact of this community, deciding that corporations were the place to start that diversity and inclusion discussion, and then, you know, to have government eventually catch up to it, right. uh, I thought was just a remarkably, remarkably thoughtful strategy. And, um, and, and you can see the success that's played out, you know, and, and so what happens when you sort of 
hit corporations where they live in terms of understanding uh, the talent needs and the customer needs, you know, you then find those corporations willing to step up into the political realm. And so, you know, for Capital One, uh, you know, we've, we've long supported a human rights campaign, uh, you know, proud of our 16 consecutive years of having a 100% score. Um, you know, we signed on to the um, amicus brief in support of marriage equality. We tweeted our support recently for the Equality Act, uh, which has finally passed the House. So, you know, again, it's another one of these flywheel effects, but you start with making the business case and then that turns into a political partnership and alliance that I think advances the cause in a profound way. Yeah, and I think our audience is very familiar with the fact that David and I are advocates of partnering with corporations because we do think they kind of pioneer equality throughout the community and for other communities as well. And I think it's great that Capital One is definitely there from August through May every you know year round for us. <laughs> exactly. But my God, you guys are there for Pride. <laughs> that was, that <laughs> we, was we try to be. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you for saying yes. We're also here the other uh, you know eleven months of the year. But yes, no, we're we're forget the pun. We're very proud of our Pride uh, right. engagements and activities over the years. Yeah. So I mean, the last couple of years, and especially this year, we we walked up to the Chinatown Cafe in D.C. and I just, I mean, it was just it was art, is what that 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 display was, that activation was, was phenomenal. From your experience, what impact did that activation have on the broader community? I think there's multiple purposes. One, it's a, you know, it's a very visible, right? A very tangible uh, message uh, to the community that we want your business um, and, and that we want you to be a part of our organization. And so, uh, you know, so it's, like I said, it serves a very, a, a very concrete purpose. Um, but it's also, also it's an opportunity, I think, to, um, to one, have a little fun and to, you know, participate in, in sort of the richness of a celebration that I think has just grown uh, in terms of its impact and its importance over time. It's an opportunity to commute very, uh, or co- uh, communicate rather very clearly to our associates that we are supportive uh, of this community and supportive of all communities. I mean, because, you know, it's not just about, you know, the LGBT community. It's, um, you know, you alluded to um, others, you know, for whom we want to celebrate the value that they add you know, to our, our company and to our, uh, and to our country. And so it's really, like I said, in many respects, trying to give back in a way that, you know, has our associates feeling very, very engaged and supported in uh, in their own journeys. And, and you're right, I think, uh, you know, the design team uh, that puts it together has a tremendous amount of fun with it. I mean, you know, to sort of bedeck the, uh, the cafes in, uh, in a sea of neon, uh, it is very, very cool. And, and I look forward every year to, uh, to what they're going to do next. You know, one of the perks of the job is that I get to see the designs um, as they sort of iterate on them. And it really is just sort of incredible. But it's also, you know, so it's kind of as a hub for events during uh, during Pride Month. So, you know, we host all manner of different sessions. You all came uh, and did some uh, some money coaching uh, sessions for us, and we appreciate that a, a great deal. We, we try to build uh, some of that programming around the event. It's a way of sort of drawing people in, but our hope is that they will stay with us and continue to work with us the other 11 months of the year and that this is just a sort of an entree into a, a longer-term relationship that we think uh, could be uh, massively mutually beneficial. Yeah, I, I definitely drink this Kool-Aid, and I think probably most of the <laughs> listeners of this podcast do. Um, so I'm, I'm curious if you could speak to your your peers and in, in throughout the industry and in other industries, your colleagues. Why do you think it's important for for not only Capital One but for more corporations to get involved in in this way? Look, I think it's a great question, and 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 I, and I would say this this need is growing; it's not shrinking. Um, like and you know, you know, make no mistake about it. We're in uh, we're in challenging political times, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll you know sort of avoid uh, you know any sort of partisan take on what I'm about to say. But the fact is, is that you know the, the cause of social progress is one that is a shared cause. I mean, we can't look to government 
to fix all of society's problems. One, it's, you know, uh, perhaps a, a role that even under the best of circumstances would be a difficult one for government to own on its own. But, you know, in the particularly uh, divisive times that we live right now, you know, we, we know that, you know, passing any meaningful legislation is, a, is an arduous task, if not close to impossible. And so the fact is we can either allow society to then stagnate uh, in terms of its forward progress, or we could look to other institutions to take up the slack. And so I don't think there's any coincidence at all that as government has become more divided, you have seen corporations become more united in pursuit of progressive causes. And so LGBT is just one start. And by the way, it was, a, as I said, a fabulous template and foundation upon which to build some of this advocacy for other causes. Uh, but you see now corporations uh, stepping into um, other sort of controversial areas of social policy or, or debate and, and, and to start making a difference. Uh, and I think that's, a, by the way, a wonderful trend, you know, and it is almost as if, uh, you know, to sort of, you know, put a wrapper on it. Uh, I don't know whether you all saw the, the business roundtable, you know, a, a organization of some of the largest uh, corporations in the country. You know, which, you know, this comes full circle back to where I kind of started this notion of shareholder value versus stakeholder value. You know, before that would have been a debate and the shareholder value crowd probably would have won. Now you have the business roundtable effectively adopting stakeholder value in theory as, um, as its sort of operating principle, this notion that it's more than just about delivering profits. It's about delivering impact. And so this is one of those places where, you know, look, I would love uh, Capital One to be recognized and to stand out for its work. But the fact is, is everybody were doing exactly the kinds of things we were doing. I think I would celebrate that because right. – um, you know, the more that we can do collectively, the more impact we can have and the more that we can keep this country moving forward, which is obviously a shared goal of all of us. Yeah, I think, you know, person to person, uh, I guess people to person, David and I would like, you know, want to thank Capital One for, for doing this great work and being pioneers in the business world in, in connecting with communities this way. And I think Capital One is great. You know, uh, a case study for anybody who's going through business school right now, trying to figure out how can you how can you um, grow your business as well as improve people's lives. So definitely, thank you for for everything you've shared so far today. I think just in closing, the geek in me, <laughs> since since Capital One's <laughs> always been a pioneer in technology and banking and and money education. What cool technology can we expect coming from Capital One here in the near future? Well, you know, it's, um, it's a tough question to answer in the sense of whatever that we have a lot going on. You know, uh, look, I, I think uh, our, our goals are always to sort of work backwards from our customers' needs and, and, and demands. And so continuing to really sort of blow out the capabilities uh, of our app, you know, we have features like CreditWise, uh, which give customers a, a peek not only into their credit score, which you all know uh, is an incredibly uh, important number in everybody's lives, hmm. but that allows uh, simulations to basically see what the impact on your credit score would be of opening a new account or closing uh, an old one. And so making that more interactive and making it more of a, you know, a daily living tool, uh, not just a, you know, every now and then kind of checking in exercise is, um, is something that, you know, that we'll continue to work on. And I think folks will start to see um, incredible features coming out in that space. With our Eno chatbot, this is one I, by the way, think is particularly cool. Uh, for the family, I've got two teenage daughters. Uh, you know, Eno sends me alerts uh, whenever <laughs> there is any activity on the card. And, uh, and so the number of times I, that Eno alert is followed by a text to my wife saying, legit, question mark. <laughs> you know, so that that one, uh, you know, I, I hate to make my, my daughters think that I'm, uh, you know, I'm monitoring their behavior. But in effect, uh, it gives me, as I said, transparency into right. the kind of, uh, of things that they're doing. Uh, so that, you know, that's that's just a wonderful tool. And by the way, you know, it's, it's stuff like if, you know, if you, uh, uh, if you tip too much, uh, if, you know, 
know, if there was a double charge, it is incredibly easy and you basically get a yes, no prompt where you can just sort of say, nope, that was a perfectly cool transaction or nope, I have no idea what that is. So that kind of real time capability of giving, you know, customers not only, you know, think about it when we were growing up, right? You have to wait for your monthly statement and then reconcile it and, right. and see whether or not those charges were legitimate. Now you get it in real time and can authorize and deauthorize those charges or reject those charges. And, and all of that is, you know, uh, with our adoption of cloud technology and, um, and, and, and our harnessing of big data and adoption of machine learning and artificial intelligence, the capabilities that that produces to have these day-to-day interactions or moment-to-moment interactions with your customers are, are really pretty profound. And then, you know, we have, a, a, I think, a, a couple of uh, a new card products coming out soon. Uh, we have a, a big a partnership with, uh, with Walmart. You know, that's a, another, again, retailer or whatever that serves all of America. And so, you know, it's very, very sort of consistent, I think, with our own DNA of saying, you know, we don't want to just serve the upper echelon of the economy. We want to serve everybody. And the new Walmart card that we'll be offering is um, is an outstanding product and a much improved value proposition uh, relative to the kinds of things that people were used to. And then, like I said, a few surprises along the way. So, uh, so stay tuned. Andy, we know that you're a busy person and it's not easy to get on your calendar, so we appreciate you sharing some time with us <laughs> and ex- explaining what Capital One is doing from a social impact perspective to help uh, not only the LGBT community, but you know our society in general. So thank you very much. No, and, and, and thank you all, uh, one, for being such wonderful partners, uh, but two, uh, and more importantly, uh, for, for, for being such a wonderful voice within your community. Uh, again, we, where we started, you know, it's not easy oftentimes for people to talk about financial services, and, and you guys do it in such a way that is so uh, beneficial to your community and so accessible. I really applaud that. So uh, anything we can do to continue to support you, we will, uh, we will do. Thank, thank you. you. Much. To learn more about Capital One and what they are doing in the community, go to CapitalOne.com forward slash about. Thank you, Andy, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to share how Capital One's serving communities all across the U.S. and changing what banking looks and feels like. It's an exciting story, and we're happy to be a small part of it. Thank you, too, for creating an open and inviting workplace for all people, LGBTQ and otherwise, to work and thrive. To our listeners, don't forget to listen to last week's episode, number 175, to hear how to get your free copy of the fabulous interior designer to the stars, Bernardo Puccio's book. It'll inspire you to bring your whole and truest self to work and life. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. To learn more about how our sponsor, Capital One, is reimagining their local spaces and experiences to have banking better fit your life, visit www.capitalone.com and follow them on social at Capital One Cafe.